all time. The GOAT. That term has become popular the last couple years. I'll never forget when the first time I heard it, someone said, yeah, yeah, that dude's a goat. I'm like, I'm sorry? He's what? Like, what are you talking about? No, 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 greatest of all time. And usually when we use that term goat, greatest of all time, we're talking about one of our sports heroes. Um, You know, if I use it, it's always about Michael Jordan, who is the greatest basketball player of all time. Sorry, you know, uh, LeBron fans, it's not true. But Michael Jordan is the greatest of all times. I think about the different ones. Michael Jordan, for example, six championships, five MVPs, 14 NBA All-Star appearances, two dunk contests because he, he didn't compete anymore because he didn't want to keep killing everybody, and 10 times NBA scoring champion. I think about another goat, if you will, greatest of all time, someone that I don't really like, but I had to come around. I had, I had a little hatred, had a little, had a little man hate for Tom Brady. I mean, you just can't. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, he ain't a cowboy, so I don't like him. But at the end of the day, six rings don't lie, right? I mean, you just can't. And then seven, and then taking, and then taking a team that can never win anything to the Super Bowl this year and winning. You got to give it up for he is one of the greatest of all time. I think about from my era, uh, Muhammad Ali as one of the greatest of all time. Cassius Clay, uh, you know, uh, uh, just unbelievable uh, what this man accomplished. You know, fifty-one wins. 37 knockouts, so half his fights he knocked him out. Uh, first ever to have three heavyweight titles. And he did all of this in the midst of one of the most racially charged, horrific era of the time. And this man overcame. I'm telling you what a great, great win. And then uh, I think about Michael Phelps. 23 gold medals. 23 gold medals. The most in the history of all time of the world. The only person that came close was some little Russian girl we don't know about. Her. She had 18, and I think they bought half of those. And I just think about, think about, I think about, can you say that on Easter Sunday? I just, I just think about what separates those that we think are the goats from everybody else. There's, a, there's great, and then there is the greatest. And I think about what they go through. I think about how Michael Jordan got cut from his high school team because he wasn't good enough at the time and how he determined that from that point forward he was going to outpractice, outwork, outexercise everyone else. In fact, you know, Michael Jordan would eat a 23-ounce steak as a professional basketball player before every game because his number was 23. And his workout routine, up until that point, no one had ever seen diet and workout mixed together. And he started changing as he got older just so he could keep up. I think about, uh, um, you know, uh, Herschel Walker, who was one of my favorites uh, growing up, what I would have called one of the greatest running backs. And Herschel Walker uh, did 2,000 push-ups a day, 3,000 sit-ups a day, 1,500 pull-ups a day, 1,000 dips, calisthenics. He would work out six, seven, eight hours a day in the off-season as well as in his competing, competing times. And the reason why I saw an interview with him, he said, because I'm getting hit like a Mack truck every day. He says, and my, my body's got to be able to be better than everyone else's. I have to be smarter than everyone else. I think about Tom Brady, for example. You may not know this about Tom Brady. One of the things that makes him the greatest versus the great ones is Tom Brady, even to this day, he has four cameras on him every day at practice. At practice. Four cameras. He pays someone 
to film him every from four different angles, four different cameras. And then when practice is over and everybody's going and playing video games and going to hang out with their wives and date night or whatever they're doing, Tom Brady then spends the next three to four hours reviewing the footage of his practice because he wants to know, do I, have I picked up a bad habit? Am I, am I, I'm not seeing some things. i got to keep mentally getting better and better and better and better. He does mental exercises to increase his ability to understand. In fact, he eats 80% of what he eats is vegetarian only, and he drinks somewhere, I think it was like somewhere between 20 and 25 glasses of water a day to cleanse out his system. You think about all that these greatest ones go through so they can be great, if you will. And then one of the things that you got to understand is how they overcome the trials that everyone else gives into. And I think about, um, when I think about the goats, one of my favorite things about Iconics is that they literally will call what they're about to do. I think about Babe Ruth with that bat pointing to the fence and saying, pitch me the ball, I'm about to hit a home run. Like, you can't hit a home run, pitch it. I'm about to put it out there. I think about every, t- every interview I've seen with people who played against Michael Jordan, they would always say, don't make him mad. Don't talk smack to him. And, and, and I'll never forget watching one of these uh, interviews with this guy. He said, man, I just had, had it with Michael. And, you know, it was, you know, everybody was all hyped up Michael in this particular game. He wasn't doing so good. I had him. I was checking him. He didn't score but 15 points in the first half. And I, as we went into the locker room, I looked at him. I said, see, see, I can guard you. You ain't as good as you say. And Michael said, okay. And he came back and he scored another 40 points in the second half on me. The greatest of all time. They have this ability to actually call it and then do what they say they're going to do. I, I love that moment with Larry Bird who played for the Boston Celtics. I love that moment where he was playing against the Phoenix Suns. And, uh, and it came down to two seconds left on the clock. And they called timeout. And as they're walking to the bench, Larry Bird walks over to the Phoenix Suns bench and says, this is what's about to happen. They're going to throw me the ball inbounds right here in front of your bench. I'm going to turn around, hit a three-point in your face to win the game. So you need to put a couple people on me. And he walks over to his bench. He tells the coach, this is the play. Let's call that. Coach is like, all right, let's do that. And he comes out. They throw in the ball. Two or three people just standing there looking like we can stop you. He shoots the three, sinks it, no seconds on the clock. And he walks over to the bench and said, I told you so. I told you I was going to do that. I, I told you that. But when I think about the greatest of all time, and and we're talking about sports heroes, I think about one who was much more iconic than that. I think about the true greatest of all time. I think about Jesus Christ when he said it like this. He said, let me tell you all something. They're going to beat me. They're going to crucify me. They're going to kill me. But on the third day, I will resurrect. On the third day, he didn't just say it, he did it. And he didn't just do it once, he continues to bring life day in and day out. He is the greatest of all time. And what he went through, what he went through, oh, I want to bring you back to that moment 2,000 years ago as Jesus has been falsely accused. How irate have we gotten, how angry as a nation when we see injustice these last couple years perpetrated. Jesus is standing there before a crowd of people in Pilate is standing there, and he says, I don't see anything guilty, so uh, anything wrong with him, so I'm going to release him. And, they, and, the, and the Jewish leaders stir up the crowd and say, no, we don't want him. Crucify him instead. And Pilate washes his hands of it and says, I don't want to have anything to do with it. I don't want to have anything to do with it, so I'm going to turn him over. He said, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to have him flogged. And you look with me in Matthew chapter 27. It says, but he had Jesus flogged. Now, when we use that English word, it doesn't have any context for us. There's no mental picture in your mind for that. But let me explain to you what a flogging was. The Romans had developed these processes of torturing people. And flogging was one of their beautiful, in their mind, chief ways to handle groups of people. See, they had conquered large groups of people, but they did not enslave them all. They allowed them, as they conquered these people who hated them, they allowed them to be... you know, brought back into their into their community and have their and keep their lives, but they would always have these insurrections, so they would put fear in them. And one of the ways they put fear in them is the way they would punish people. So they take Jesus, an innocent man, and they have him flogged, they stretch him out over this post, and then they take what was called the cat of nine tails. It was a whip that had nine strands, nine straps, and at the end of every strap was a sharp piece of metal. And what the, what the person would do, there was two of them. One would hit him left-handed on one side, and the other one would hit him right-handed. And they would start at the top, of, right at the base of his neck. And they would begin, they would, hit, they would hook that, like meat, meat hooks. They'd hook it into his muscle and then shred his muscle all the way down. By the time they were finished, most men died. Jesus didn't just die at that moment. Because Jesus was not this little girly thing that they, these pictures that everybody puts him as this little anorexic looking thing on the cross. He was a man's man. Let me tell you something. Our Jesus took the licks and as they shredded his muscles off of his back all the way down to the top of his buttocks, right to that spot, most men died in that moment. And then what it says in Matthew chapter 27, it says, Then the governor's soldiers took him into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe. So then he turns them over and the soldiers take him to their barracks. A bunch of wicked, non-God-believing soldiers take him to their barracks. And there they strip him down naked. There they make, and he's already bleeding. I mean, profusely, everything, every muscle. He can't even hold up his arms because all the muscles are all throughout his back. He has no strength to even. And they sit there and they put a, they put a thorn, a crown of thorns on his head and they begin to beat it into his skull. Then they blindfold him and they, and they start punching him in the face. And they say, prophesy who's hitting you now. They tear his beard out by ripping it out. The anger, the violence by which they treated our king the king of glory. And then when they were finished with that, they marched him up that hill of Golgotha. They laid him on that cross. They nailed his hands and his feet to that cross. And they lifted him up for all to see. The sinless son of God was murdered right there in front of the whole world to see. No one, no one, no one would dare believe that it didn't happen because it was public. It wasn't a private moment. It was a very public moment. And then... As he began to breathe his last breath, he makes this statement, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And then as he died there on that cross, they took his body down and they put him in the grave. For three days, that body laid in that tomb where that stone had been rolled in front of it, where it had been sealed so no one could say that, that he resurrected it. Guards were posted there so that no activity could happen that they didn't know about, that they could not stop. Oh, friend, but then in Matthew chapter 28, you still with me? Say yes. And it says, and after the Sabbath, at the dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. Everybody say violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat up on that thing. His appearance was like lightning. Everybody say lightning. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid. 
They were so afraid of this angel that they shook and became like dead men. These jokers started having a seizure and fell down and just was frozen looking at him. Couldn't even move. And then the angel, verse 5, said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus. Come on, somebody. Who was crucified. This is my verse 6. I want you to get it. He is not here. He has risen just like he said. He has risen just like he said he was going to do. He did it. Friend, that is the goat. That is the greatest of all time. To call it and then do it and accomplish it. He went down into that old grave and he defeated, the Bible says, sickness. He defeated sin and the grave. Hell could not hold him. Come on, somebody. It could not destroy him. He conquered it because he was the sinless Lamb of God. He was the only man to walk the planet and to never sin. 1 Corinthians 15 says it like this. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. Can I help your thought prosper a little bit? The sting of death is sin. See, when Adam and Eve disobeyed, sinned against God in the garden, this is what God told them. He said, listen, of any of the trees in the garden you can eat of, but not of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the moment you take of it and you eat of it in rebellion to me, the moment you do that, you shall surely die. Go look it up in the book of Genesis. You shall surely die. Satan comes to them in the form of a serpent. And he says, that's not true. You won't die. <laughs> you will not die. He's lying to you. He's just scared you're going to be just like him, knowing all things. He doesn't want you to be on the same level. And so when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they didn't immediately die because God wasn't just talking about a physical death. He was talking about an eternal death, an eternal separation. Let me help you understand something because most of you don't get this. We were created by God. God took a man, a mud man, and he formed this mud man from the dirt. And then the Bible says he breathed into Adam the breath of life. <gasps> Didn't do that with any of the other animals. God took his nature, his DNA, and he put it inside of that piece of dirt. And then from that, he separated out half of him and created woman. We are, of all the creatures ever, ever made, we're the only ones to have his DNA. So the creator put part of him in us. Are you tracking with me? So the moment... As a four-year-old that you told your first lie, the moment that you began to sin, at whatever age you began sinning, what happened was from that point forward, the death process started because sin brings you to death. It separates you from God. Oh, yeah. The moment that Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't die in that moment, but they started the death process. And at some point, their heart stopped beating, their brain waves stopped working, and they, from dust they came, from dust they returned, and they went back into the ground. But friend, can I tell you something? Jesus did not come just to keep you from dying a physical death, but to keep you from being eternally separated from your creator, to keep you from spending eternity. See, I want you to picture, remember those old zombie movies, those old horror movies that you used to watch as a young person and you remember how they walking through the through, in the night through the graveyard and all of a sudden the hand comes up and grabs them and, ah, and starts dragging them down into the thing that's what sin does the moment you sin it gets a grip on you and starts bringing you down into darkness that's why when you were younger you told a little lie that then turned into this that did turn into this and before you know it you're living in perversion and hatred and all this stuff why because it drags you deeper into death deeper into the old grave as the Bible it refers to it as, oh, but Jesus, oh, but Jesus, the greatest of all time, 
because he was sinless, because there was never a grip on his leg pulling him down because he never sinned. Because of that, and then he was murdered innocently. He went down into that grave, and he said, hey, 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 hey. Give it up. It's mine now. And he defeated that. When he resurrected, he broke that power to drag you down into the grave, totally separated from your God, from your creator. He broke that power. And the Bible says, whosoever would believe on him would not perish but have eternal life. And he separated out those who would be drugged into darkness, who would be drugged into the grave. He separated out those who would not accept him and those who would, that he would literally lift them up out of that grave even as he came out of the grave. This is what we're celebrating today. This this is what makes him the greatest of all time. It's not that he died, it's that he resurrected. Can I tell you something? Steve Jobs didn't resurrect for you. He's still dead in the grave. It ain't happening. Muhammad didn't resurrect for you. He's still dead. He did not call it and then do it. Jesus is the one true Messiah. He is the one and the only one. He is the greatest of all times. Are you still with me? Say yes. And Colossians says it like this in chapter 2 and verse 15. And having disarmed. The powers and authorities. See, the moment that we sinned in the garden, we empowered Satan and all the demonic forces. They began to have power over us. But when Jesus died and he went down into that tomb area, he took the keys away from them. He took their power away from them. He says, I will not have it anymore. I have that power to control. And then you will not control any more humanity. So, friend, for you and I, to still be drugged down into that grave means that we have not gotten on the right team. Are you tracking with me? Say yes. We got the wrong leader because the enemy is constantly trying to get you down in that grave, trying to kill you and destroy you. But Jesus, the Bible says, disarmed those powers, and then he made a public spectacle by triumphing at the cross. When he rose from the dead, it was broken. The power of death and sin was broken. I think about these greatest of all times. Why do they do it? Why do they do 2,000 push-ups a day? Why do they study hours and hours of footage? What is their goal? What are they trying to accomplish? Is it to have the greatest shoe deal in the world, to have more money and have yachts? For some of them. Is it that trophy that they want to put on their mantle? The gold medallions around their neck, 23 of them? That's most of their goals. The applause and the accolades of men... Why did the greatest of all times do what he did? What was his goal? What was his trophy? What was his prize? It was you. And you, and you, and you, and, you, and me. He did this not so that we would clap for him. He didn't need the accolades of man. He created man. He didn't need a trophy. He didn't need a gold medallion. He paves the streets with gold. He, 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 we were created in his image, and he just said, enough is enough. You're not taking what's mine anymore. And so he went to this earth. He lived a spotless life. He got up on that cross. At any moment, he could have fried them all and said, let's start over, Dad. I don't like this group anymore. He could have started all over, but he didn't. He went to the grave, and he resurrected for you. And listen, let me, let the Bible says that as a result of that, we are more than conquerors. We are more than, I need you to get this. Jesus stood in that rink 
and he beat down the, the sin, death, and the grave. The Bible says that he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our sin lay upon him, but he overcame that, and by his stripes, we were healed. And then what he did was he then called us sons and daughters, and anyone who calls upon his name gets to have all of the rewards of what he fought for more than a conqueror. I always explain it like this. That dude gets in the rink, and he fights, and his nose is knocked sideways, and he goes ten, he goes eight rounds, man, and finally he knocks the enemy out, and he's getting there, and he's all beat up, and they bring him in, bring him the check, and he's got that big poster board check, and then he calls his wife, hey, come up here, and then he hands his wife the check. He's a conqueror, but she is more than a conqueror. She didn't get punched in the face. Come on, somebody. She didn't chase the chickens trying to get in shape. All she did was come into a covenant relationship with him. And the result is whatever he bought, paid for, and fought off and, and was able to accomplish, she gets the reward of that. Not because she's able to do it, because she married into the one who's able to do it. Are you tracking with me today? We come into covenant relationship with the one, and he is our God. He is the lover of our soul. And when we come into that relationship with him, all the things that he bought and paid for, all the things he fought and destroyed, all the things that he conquered become accessible by us because he is good. See, he didn't just die and resurrect and as a result defeat just the devil and the grave and sin he also defeated sickness he also defeated depression and the and the brokenness of this old world and so for you and I to continue living in that means that we don't have a clear understanding or maybe we're not in proper covenant with the one who defeated it all sometimes you get discouraged and you feel like my life's not happening the way I thought it should. And you lose a little bit of faith. And I thought this morning, if you would allow me, I'd like to just show you a story of a couple in our church. A couple in our church, the Appels. They had four children, three girls and a boy. Pretty much wrapping the whole thing up, but they had a word from the Lord that they were going to have another little boy. And later in life, a little aged, if you will, a little more mature, they got pregnant again. And they were so excited. But somewhere in the midst of that pregnancy, they got a diagnosis about the child in the womb. And the diagnosis was such that most of the children that are diagnosed with this, 97% of them do not make it out of the womb alive. But I want to tell you about people who trusted in the God who is the greatest of all. In fact, instead of me telling you, could I show it to you for just a moment? Won't you hear their words as they share with you how God's done miracles for them? Uh, we got pregnant uh, right before COVID hit last year and we kind of knew even before we found out that uh, we were going to have a boy. We really believed that God was going to give us a boy. A couple weeks after I found out he officially was a boy, they discovered something through my 20-week um, tests that something was going on with his brain. Didn't really think anything about it. We prayed with our small group leaders and um, just kind of left it at that. And, so I went to a specialist and she told me what the doctor had initially thought was not the case. I kind of breathed in sigh of relief and kind of laughed and chuckled and then she said, oh no, it's something way worse and didn't really expect that. Kind of, kind of caught me totally off guard and she explained to us that his brain was not forming correctly. 
It's the name is actually holoprophocephaly, and what it is is your brain doesn't correctly, doesn't form properly. Um, he doesn't have a right or left brain. He has one whole brain, and and it's missing segments and pieces of the brain to not form as it's supposed to form. She would say things like um, severely disabled, um, just frightening terms that I really wasn't quite prepared to cope with. And so I'm listening to the doctor's diagnosis over the phone and I'm like, okay, it just, it didn't register with me. I'm like, oh, that doesn't make sense. Why would uh, God give us a son and then he's disabled? Just, I think the word seizure was the scariest word for me because we were told, oh yeah, he's gonna have seizures. She goes, oh, it means he could probably live up until he's two. First time she'd even mentioned death to me. I'd never even thought about the word death at all. One of the things that's always been important to me is skin to skin after birth, and you know, be able to hold the baby and like, oh no, don't even expect that. Don't, don't, we're gonna have to do, we're gonna have to do medical stuff. It's not gonna be like that. And within two or three minutes of giving birth, um, they looked over and they're like, there's. There's nothing. And they handed him to me and I'm holding him and I'm like, why am I able to hold him? What's going on? His hormones needed to be okay. He needed to be able to nurse. He needed to be able to regulate his body temperature and he needed to breathe on his own. And these are four things that we were prepared. Any and all of those could be problems for him. And none of them were problems for him after he was born. If I'm honest, some days, it's a matter of reminding yourself, strengthening yourself in what you already know, because the world's kind of crazy. And some days fear tries to keep seep in, but I've learned that the way to overcome that is to keep our eyes on Jesus, to know that He's our hope. He's the one we can look to. We just need to find real life. what we've experienced with John Caleb through the highs and the lows, God has been faithful and if he can do a miracle in our lives, uh, we know that he can do a miracle in yours as well.